Work is no longer just about productivity and metrics. It's about people. And when we focus on positivity, communication, belonging, and development, the numbers take care of themselves. This is Work Human Radio, where we talk to authors, researchers, and business leaders about the latest trends making work more human around the world. Here's your host, Mike Wood. Welcome to another edition of Work Human Radio. I am your host, Mike Wood, and I am joined once again by the wonderful Lauren Brown. Hi, Lauren. You're going to help me out with this interview today, Hello. right? Yes, I am delighted. Because you're a super fan, right? I'm a super fan of Sally. <laughs> well, we have Sally Thank Thornton. You. <laughs> yes. Welcome, Sally. You were a speaker at Work Human. And can you just give us a little bit of your background and introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. I had such a wonderful time at Work Human. It was my first year. And my background is essentially an entrepreneur who's trying to make work better. I started the firm because I saw that I was part of the problem, which is this all-in worker who sort of put work above all else for the good reason of dedication. Like, I want to do good work. I want to make a change in the world. But I did it in a way that kind of sacrificed sort of the full life, as I like to think of it. And so when I started the company, it was because I wanted to find a solution that was not just for me, but for others about how do we do our best work on terms that work for our full life and not see them as competing forces. So the way that shows up is recruiting because you got to put people in the right places at the right time. And it can be project-based like interim CFO, interim recruiter, interim compensation, et cetera, et cetera. Or it can be direct hire, and we do executive search with a focus on diversity inclusion because that's been our beginnings. And that's the find great talent. And then the other part of Forche is making work better through new ways of experimenting. So we do design thinking sprints with professor from the Stanford Design School and clients like Airbnb and Mozilla. And we just try and mix it up. And you know what we know, and you guys, this is what you solve so well. We know that the way that work is happening is broken for most. And so how do we shine a light on new ways to make work better for all of us in really practical ways? And I think that's the key because there's a lot of great information out there, but it's how do you translate it into action that really lights me up. I love it. Yeah. Everybody's swimming in data, but I (laughs) (laughs) I love what is kind of happening in the space. And the fact that people are, I mean, I grew up knowing that you know, you're basically, the harder you work, the more hours you work, the better your life is going to be. Mm -hmm. And you work hard, work hard. And then when you retire, you get to relax. So Mm -hmm. what I really liked is your kind of work-life blend that you showcased. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And there is a YouTube TEDx out there for those who want to dive into it, but because the visuals can sometimes help the audio, right? So the visual is came from Stanford Center of Longevity, which basically said the model from a like cultural perspective, um, this is mostly American, but also sort of Western culture, is that you get educated, you work like a dog, and then one day you might golf, <laughs> have like retirement and, you know, and full autonomy. But really the model of work that is beneficial to all, it's a virtuous cycle, is learning your whole life you know, working your whole life because 50% of the people born today are going to make it to a hundred. So the idea of retirement is kind of an illusion. And then the part that we typically don't spend time on is the part that Stanford calls it leisure, which, but I call it oxygen mask first, which is the things that we know we should do. We should exercise, we should sleep, we should be with friends and family, but we typically have seen them as a distraction from work. In fact, I have someone on my team who's pregnant and she said, 
you know, don't worry. I'm still going to be super engaged. And I said, wait a minute, <laughs> why don't we talk about things in life as like an interruption of work, <laughs> you know? And so we need to have new visuals, new models of how these things actually support your best work because we're designed as human beings to have it all. We're designed to sleep and, you know, think clearly in the morning and to go out and do good work in the world and to be with people we love. And so all of these things are important, but if we look at them as competing forces, it kind of gives us the wrong, that's why I hate work-life balance because it gives us the wrong visual. We've created a false choice. And I actually think when you look at the science, you're actually designed to have it all. We just have to figure out how. And that's kind of where Lauren and I had a great conversation on the stage of like, how do we actually take these ideas and put them into action and make sure that we're not falling into the old myths around more work is better. So for you, Sally, like what does the ideal work-life blend look like and how can you sort of encourage someone who maybe is that workaholic type? Like what small steps can they take to get into it? It's such a great question. And I come at it with a hundred percent empathy because I am that. So I'm from the Midwest, (laughs) (laughs) right? And as Mike was saying, I was taught the more work you do, like the more valuable you are, like the more you're respected, right? But we obviously know there's a limit to that, right? I mean, Ford, when he put in the 40-hour work week, Henry Ford of Ford Motors, it wasn't because he was a nice guy. It was because he saw that there were more errors on the machine line that actually cost more (laughs) when humans started making mistakes. So we know intellectually that more work is not better. But then to your point, Lauren, of like, what do you do? So you experiment is the bottom line. If there's one thing you remember from this podcast is that life is full of small experiments. And so, you know, rather than it being an HR policy or a big change in your whole life, it's really the small steps. So the first thing I did because I practice what I preach and I fail and then I practice again <laughs> and then I fail and I practice again. The first thing I did was sleep. So if I don't get, I actually need like eight to nine hours. The science says you need at least seven. Otherwise you actually are impaired cognitively similar to drinking and driving. It's mm-hmm. like really serious. And so I know that no one listening to this podcast is drinking and driving and yet we are drinking or we're not drinking, we're, maybe Friday <laughs> night, but we are tired right? And we're driving tired. And so if you think of it as like, I would never do that to my family. I would never do that to the people on the road of my neighbors. Then maybe you'll take care of yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Because we're very good at taking care of others. We're just really bad at taking care of ourselves. So the first thing I would say is sleep. And one way that I've done that better is to set my alarm on my phone, not to wake me up, but to actually put me to sleep. (laughs) So I joke, it's like reversing the rules. So I set the alarm on my phone to kind of have a wind down period, to get in bed and read. I did have to do a digital detox. I thought that watching television before bed calmed me down. That was like a belief I had in my 20s. And I learned that's not true. (laughs) And actually like you know, reading winds your brain down and you sleep better. So that's like step number one, that's super easy. And another one is exercise. And I used to think of exercise as weight control because I always felt like in the Midwest, you eat a lot of cheese, (laughs) a lot of bread. (laughs) I always like struggled with my weight. And so when I saw exercise as 
that, it's so funny. I guess I wasn't vain enough. Like I didn't do it enough. (laughs) But when I shifted and saw exercise as my brain thinking better, it's so funny how I prioritize that differently. Hmm. So I make sure when I'm on calls, I start pacing and walking and getting my 10,000 steps in. Hmm. I schedule meetings as walk and talks as much as I can. I found something called the seven minute app that's totally free on your phone. And it's, you know, mixing up jumping jacks. With I have it on my phone. Up. I don't. All use right. It. No, but I don't. <laughs> okay, this is all right. my problem. I have all of these things and I don't use them. <laughs> all right. So here's how to change the idea. This is exactly it, Lauren. You're, it's brilliant. So what we know is that knowledge does not equal behavior change. So consider putting it on your calendar because everything that we put on our calendar, we pay a little bit more attention to, right? I actually am pretty bad at looking at my to-do list, but I'm really good at looking at my calendar. So the way I'd started it was I would calendar it because I don't know, it just feels like it's real. Yeah. (laughs) So consider, and it doesn't have to be seven days a week. Although I was just interviewing this fabulous woman who works at Slack and she said, the way that she gets her exercise done is that she doesn't think about it because the more you think about it, she's a lawyer. She's like, I can argue myself out of this. (laughs) So I can't think about it. So the first thing she does when she wakes up is exercise. And that way she doesn't let her brain make a choice. It's just like forced habit. So you could say, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to do my seven minute app because frankly, everyone has seven minutes, Mm -hmm. right? And if you get it done before you shower and before, like just consider experiment and put it on your calendar for a week. If we bite size these, we've seen in the neuroscience that like it's much easier for your brain to try it versus like I'm starting a new exercise regime, like a New Year's resolution. We know this sort of fail. Mm. So try it for a week, Lauren, and I want to hear back. Okay. (laughs) I like that because I have a three-year-old right now and she's having a real hard time going to bed because she has so much energy. So my typical day, she comes and wakes us up at like 6 a.m. and we struggle to get her ready. We struggle to get her out the door. We get ourselves ready. And then at night, she comes home, struggle to feed her and then get her wind down. And then by the time we have time for ourselves, it's 930. Mm. So I've been really wanting to uh, get out and exercise. And I was able to do this a little bit last year where I would just be the only one in my neighborhood essentially just running around at night because I could at least get out by nine o'clock. But now I'm just so tired. So yeah, any advice you have? (laughs) Well, so I heard the word struggle like 17 times. Yep. I, <laughs> I am a struggle bus. <laughs> no, but the reality is so a couple of things. One is it's a chapter. The chapter with young kids is so hard. So mine are in the teens now, and I will say it's so hard, but they're hard in different ways at different times. So when mine were little, like yours, it was, it was what I call a multiplier, which is how do you exercise with them? Because if you try and create new time to do something, that feels hard a struggle. But if you say, okay, while she's running around, I'm actually going to do the seven minute app because it's only seven minutes and she's going to see me jumping around. It might even make her laugh, you know? So consider ways of combining things where it isn't like you have to do it at the end of the day or wake up earlier and not get your seven hours of sleep. And sometimes we have to be a little clever about it when you find that seven minutes. But, you know, again, I would say just like Lauren, try for a week to just consider where in the day you can do that seven minute app and just see where you might surprise yourself at how easy it is. Or if it's hard, you call me back. (laughs) I love the idea. I think when I was doing a lot of running last year and I would tell her she got a real kick out of me going to run. I don't know. It could have been mocking me, but she got a real (laughs) kick out of it. (laughs) 
<laughs> hey, it works. I mean, I do see a lot of parents doing like yoga with their kids and then their dogs come in and it's like super funny, right? Yeah. So, you know, that's the challenge is if we try to do everything as a single hit, like now I'm going to work, now I'm going to exercise, now I'm going to sleep, now I'm going to see friends, you can run out of time, right? It can feel mm-hmm. zero sum. And so that's why I won't walk with the people that I'm working with, right? And I spend time with my friends working in the community, like if we're like raising money for our local schools. So that I'm with my friends and I'm helping my school at the same time. And a lot of times it's like, we'll do a 10K run or something. And so when you combine your goals, then it can be a home run. You can get like four of the things that matter to you in a single activity. And that's the multiplier research from Jennifer Ocker at Stanford that changed my life because I used to see the multitasking and say like, well, I know that doesn't work from a neuroscience perspective, but how do I get more things done? And her research around multipliers like changed my life. Mm. So I want to shift gears just a little bit and talk about your work. And I'm kind of wondering, so we're human, we're all about gratitude and mm-hmm. continuous feedback. How does that fit into some of the work that you're doing? I love we're human so much because it's central. Like it kind of goes back to that oxygen mask first. So when I started doing research on the future of work, the best question I would get from all the people I interviewed was the question I asked around what's going to remain true and important in the future of work that also is true and important today? Because it's noisy out there around what's possible. And it comes down to the things that work human is all about, which is how do you live in your body? How do you communicate with others? And how do you live fully, right? Appreciation and gratitude and human connection. These are like central things that are not going away. And in fact, I think are becoming more true and important. I think to a certain extent, millennials express the needs and wants of what my dad as a baby boomer wanted, but he didn't even think he could express it. Like it was like, you know, you kind of like showed up for work with an armored suit on, even in corporate America, and you would not say a lot of these things that you felt inside. And what's great now is I feel like we're embracing the fact that when we are bringing our full human self to work and we are grateful for each other and we express it, you know, both written and oral and right. And we have that human connection. Then all of our energy is spent on creativity, which is what matters and problem solving and not wasting energy on kind of covering up who we are or trying to be, some sort of ideal worker that no one feels like everyone feels like an imposter there. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's where the intersection for me is, is really unleashing people's creativity and allowing them to enjoy and not feel like they have to compartmentalize their lives because we're very complicated people. And when we feel like we have to compartmentalize ourselves, we waste our energy in the wrong place. It's mm, true. That's very true. So Sally, just to circle back a little, when you talked about like seeing, like recognizing that there was this problem and starting this company to sort of answer it, you talk about it being a multi-generational issue. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. people who are close to retiring are feeling it. Millennials are feeling it. How does it differ between the generations and what advice, like what pain points are there for like older people? And just the idea of, not retiring and continuing working and continuing to provide value. Like for me, I'm a writer and I'm a career writer and I also write as my passion. Like I've written a couple of works of fiction, but I worry as I get older, what is my value going to still be? Like, how do I keep myself, I guess, 
how do you stay at the top of your game as you age and how like is there a stigma around that where like have you had difficulty placing like older people in the right positions because there is that sort of ageist stigma out there unfortunately yes so generationally we have norms and beliefs and so one of the talks i give is how to drive in a multi-generation workforce because i like to again look at the science versus maybe what the clickbait is on the media side right and the challenges is a lot of hiring managers because we're all exhausted and feeling overstretched they only see what's in the media and they're not doing research on like what's true about the generational norms right so it's tricky because I encounter the bias all the time and, you know, I have to check my own biases, right? So let's on the generational side. When I first started, I thought I was solving a problem for working moms in particular who wanted something in between the 80-hour work week, you know, like I'm running a huge team globally and like a stay-at-home mom. That was what I thought I was solving for originally when I said, let's do project-based, you know, high-level work. What I found was that baby boomers wanted this, that millennials wanted this, that dads are super modern and awesome and want this. And so it really was this human-centered, like work-human approach, right? Which is, we all want to do interesting work. We want to keep learning and we want to feel valued. What you were just saying, like you want to be at the top of your game. And so how we do that, so to your point, like if someone's at the, a different stage in their career, it's the ongoing learning that's going to keep them adaptable and interesting. Like if you're a writer and you don't understand how ads work or how, you know, you're going to sell your piece to the New York Times or whatever, get the editor to say yes, then you're not going to get it. So you have to stay a learner's mindset. So the idea of the expert, I like to shift to say what IDEO called, IDEO is this design thinking firm in the Bay Area. Well, they're global, but they're based here. Yep. And they have a T model. So the depth of the T is your expertise. So you're a fantastic writer. You can tell stories. The across side of the T is that you're broad in your thinking. So you might be learning about guitar and not even know how it relates to writing. And then you'll have the spark of inspiration when you're on your run, right? Mm-hmm. Or you might be exploring astrophysics because you've learned that Pluto's no longer a planet, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you start like, but if you don't stay a learner and you just live in the fact that you're an expert, mm-hmm. that's where, frankly, careers go to die, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Because and that's where we joke, we have to always tell a Steve Jobs story when we live in the Bay Area. <laughs> yep. And the, the famous Steve Jobs story is like, he couldn't hire the expert to develop the iPhone because it wasn't a thing. You had to go create it, mm. right? So you have to bring people together who have different perspectives and who believe they are learners, mm. right? Because if they come in and say, I have all the answers, then how could you possibly be creative? You're just going to be replicating what you did before as an expert, right? right. There's no innovation there. So I'd say... From the generational perspective, if you are that person trying to get that project or job, I would say embrace the learner's mindset, you know, live it. And then if you're a hiring manager, consider how a multi-generational team actually brings more creativity to the team. Mm. It's a reflection of who your customers are, right? Unless you're only targeting 15-year-old boys for the specific game, <laughs> right? <laughs> Most teams need to have, you know, gender diversity, age diversity, racial diversity, cultural global perspectives to under to represent who your customers are and then we design better products and services. 
I love all this because I'm a big fan of continuous learning. I get lost in Wikipedia mm-hmm. all the time. <laughs> oh, about interesting. It. All the time. Well, because like information is no longer confined to like a library or a particular university anymore. Like anybody can learn about anything and there's lots of free resources out there. So I think that you got to continuously like challenge yourself and you want to learn something, go out and find it because it's out there. Mm. So we're running a little bit low on time here for the podcast, but if anybody wants to kind of follow your work or get to know you more, what are your like social channels and website? So... The easiest, if you want more of the visuals, I would just put Sally Thornton videos in Google and you'll get, I did a couple TEDx's and I did a similar one to work human on the science of work-life blend. It's about 45 minutes and I talk really too fast, but Hey, you get a lot of data. (laughs) Laura knows I talk really fast. (laughs) So the, the videos are on YouTube and then my social channels are LinkedIn. I have probably the most followers and it's just Sally Thornton, T H O R N T O N. And I'm building my Twitter following, so I'd love for people to follow me there because I feel like that can be more bite-sized talking. In fact, Mm -hmm. when I was at Work Human, Kat Cole, who was such a fantastic keynote, and I started tweeting to each other. (laughs) So it's interesting because I used to have like a dim view of Twitter. But as I started to have more conversation, I decided that Twitter is like what you make of it. Like if you follow good people, you have a great conversation. If you follow bots you have bad <laughs> yeah, i mean twitter it's still the jury is out on that in terms of the actual worth for it because there's just so much out there but cat yeah. cat cole is very active and very responsive and i think you you find those people you find your tribe essentially well thank you exactly. for, for joining us and we hope to hear more from you and any of the things that you're doing thank you so much sally thank you <laughs> yeah it's a total pleasure i am a work human fan If you want to see business leaders, culture keepers, and industry experts come together to share the latest research and ideas for making work more human, you need to be at WorkHuman March 18th through the 21st in Nashville. Visit WorkHuman.com to see the full lineup of speakers and reserve your spot in the number one conference of 2019.